Welcome back to the Heart Gallery Podcast. I'm Rebecca Rivola the Kremer. In today's episode, we are stepping into the evolving world of climate storytelling with a guest who I would say is redefining its boundaries. Joining me is Justin Cook. He is a visionary in the field of environmental narrative, and his work is so visionary because it stands in stark contrast to the conventional climate storytelling landscape. From where I'm standing, climate storytelling is still so often dominated by dire predictions, this sense of impending doom, and Justin's work breathes life and color into this narrative. I would say traditional climate storytelling often could leave one feeling quite overwhelmed and despondent. I don't know about you, but definitely does that to me, to many people that I know. But Justin's work is different. He specializes in long-form storytelling, and he really truly does weave tapestries of a narrative where there is human emotion, there is uh, a lot of redefinition of what is community resilience, and all, all all of his storytelling is marked by a deep connection to place. His stories are not just about climate change. They're about people, their lives, their struggles, their triumphs. And this just happens to be against a context of environmental challenge. I think by focusing on the human element and the other stories within communities, Justin transforms impersonal data into relatable, compelling narrative. He brings a blend of depth and imagination and empathy to his storytelling And that is what turns the often flat and despair-laden narrative of climate change into one that is actually marked by hope and agency and possibility. On top of that, his photography work brings visual story to his writing and connects his audience more deeply to his subjects, whether they are human or not human. In today's conversation, Justin and I will talk about how his storytelling is the light in the darkness that it is. How does he do it? And we'll also talk about his journey, the impact of his work. And also we will talk about the communities that he knows so intimately. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Justin. Hello. Welcome to the Heart Gallery podcast. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. It's great to be here. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you today and to start the conversation off, I want to disclose something. And that is that I'm someone who's been working in the very broad quote unquote climate space for, you know, over a decade. And before that I was doing an undergraduate degree. So it's, it's a while and I have a bit of an aversion to climate storytelling when someone shares with me, you know, they're like, oh, check out this like story about this facet of climate or listen to this podcast about like this, this climate thing. And very often I just either I ignore it or I like begrudgingly, you know, look at it or listen to it. And I think that one thing that, <laughs> that made me want to speak to you so much is that you're doing a different kind of climate storytelling. The kind of climate storytelling that I am so turned off of, I don't know how to characterize it. I I feel like it's quite difficult to describe accurately, but maybe like one way to describe it is to say that there's a lack of 
creativity and imagination that it's quite flat storytelling if if there's even storytelling at all like very often it's just quite fact based there isn't a lot of human detail and often it's rooted in this sense of despair and i wonder if you as a quote unquote climate storyteller if you have a similar experience or if you could share like what your experience with climate storytelling is from from someone who experiences it from others Man, that is such a great question. Honestly, I feel like most climate storytelling like hopelessly bores me to tears because there isn't a lot of depth or it focuses on like carbon parts per million in the atmosphere and like all this scary science, which is important to report on, but it doesn't go much deeper than that. It doesn't show us like how we can move forward. It doesn't give people a sense of agency in their own communities. It lacks imagination. And I, and I think I was asked this question like when I interviewed for um, the Solutions Journals and Network Climate Cohort that I was in this past year. And they were like, you know, why are you turning to solutions journalism? Like what, what about climate storytelling is frustrating to you? And I was like, you know, it's not the doom or gloom necessarily. It's more that like, I just feel deeply that humans are capable of more than what we've been doing for the past, like 200, 400, 600 years. Like, okay, if we can figure out how to dig up the remains of extinct worlds and creatures and burn them as fossil fuels, then we can figure out another way to like organize our economy so that we're not destroying our planet and ourselves and everything. So like, that's kind of, that's kind of like my mindset when I like embark on a climate story. It's more like, how do we think more imaginatively about what we're capable of as a species um, and how we can like better relate to one another and also kind of solve all these problems and save ourselves from the ground up. What's the first example of your work where you were getting into that space, this solutions storytelling, as you call it? Well, I feel like, you know, I've been doing this work. I don't think I've been doing it for very long since like 2017, so less than 10 years. But my first foray into this was reporting on how the Outer Banks of North Carolina were being affected by climate you know, it's this thin strand of barrier islands. It's sort of the crown jewel of North Carolina's tourism industry. It's where my mom's dad, so my maternal grandfather is from. And there's been a lot of work done about the Outer Banks, like really beautiful work. It's a popular place to write about. And like, you know, journals have done some incredible photography there, um, reporting on this exact issue. And for me, like I wanted to go in kind of a slightly different angle and do some sort of, you know, do some explanatory science reporting to explain to people like how complicated this issue is there because you have sea level rise on top of erosion that's been being caused by the human interference with the island, like the highway and building houses on the beach side or the, you know, the Atlantic Ocean side. But like take this huge, huge, huge issue, like this hyper object of climate change and make it really small and show how it's affecting ordinary people and show not necessarily like these capital S solutions of like, you know, they're not, you know, doing things on the outer banks that are going to, it's going to solve climate change outright at a global scale, but they're doing things to save what's important to them and their community. So that story was told through 
a 150-year-old cemetery that was washing into the Pamlico Sound as a result of sea level rise and erosion and all these factors. And it became a very complicated narrative because there were all these things colliding to make this issue worse. But at the end of the day, you know, I found a group of women who were organizing to basically find ways to preserve this cemetery, even though in the long term it's doomed. I mean, there's no way to permanently save it. But, you know, for them, this was they were sort of beginning their journey to like understand their own climate emotions, whether they were thinking about climate or not. So on one hand, it was like a solution story, like kind of a small S, like how do you, how do you save what's important to you and decide what's worth preserving in your community? But also like them grappling with this idea, this concept called soul nostalgia, which is this feeling of homesickness when you are at home and you're in your, your homeland or your community, but your community or your home is being so ravaged by environmental change that you feel like you don't recognize it anymore. I think that experience kind of changed how I thought about this sort of storytelling. It made me want to really slow down. How did you connect to the community in the Outer Banks? And I think you're talking about this piece of yours, beautiful piece called Tide and Time. That's correct. And uh, I know you have some family connection to the Outer Banks too, but I imagine that coming in you don't live in the outer banks i don't know how much time you spent there but you're coming in and you're connecting with people around something that is so deeply personal this idea of soul nostalgia i mean i imagine that that goes to like the core of people's experiences the core of like their deep emotional landscapes um how how are you getting to that place with people it's a very slow process some of the main people on that that work, that project, like Jenny Creech and Dawn Taylor, I actually met them through Facebook of all places. They um, started this like Facebook group called Friends and Family and Descendants uh, of the Salvo de Use Area Cemetery. And, you know, you're talking about women who are predominantly like Gen, Gen X and baby boomers. And they're sort of like entering this phase of their life where not only are they grappling with like what's going on on Hatteras Island and how it's changing, but there's a sense of them grappling with their mortality as well. And I joined that group and like kind of slowly figured that out just from spending time with them. And like, I would meet them in person and like, you know, Jenny and Dawn and I actually became like fast friends. We just like really hit it off and like connected really deeply. And Dawn is really into genealogy so she's like kind of like a news hound in her own way. She's like a reporter. She's good at like digging up historical documents. Like we just bonded. I mean, I was like, I, was, I kept telling them, like, y'all are kind of just doing the same thing I'm doing. You're reporting on something in your own way. And then Dawn, <laughs> Dawn figured out that I actually had a distant relative that was related to her and to Jenny that, who used to be in the cemetery, but their bodies had been washed out into Pamlico Sound like years ago during a hurricane. And, you know, it was like this slow four-year process. And, you know, I I had this idea of what the story would be and it totally shifted and like found things like that out along the way. And I think that's the sort of the benefit of like spending time in a place, like just all these unexpected things happen. You meet these unexpected people. And, you know, Jenny, she eventually introduced me to uh, Jean Hooper. She's an uh, older woman. She's 85 and she's lived in Salvo all her life. And her husband and her relatives are buried at the cemetery and she wants to be buried there no matter what. Like even if the, the ocean takes her bones one day. And there's just something like almost like hopelessly romantic about that to me. Um, Cause like, 
you know, at the time I was reading a lot um, of, there's this book by Rachel Carson called The Sea Around Us. And, you know, she paints the, the, the ocean as like this mother of all life, but also sort of as this like alpha and omega. It's like the beginning of all life. And at the end, we all end up back in the, in the sea, like as the land is eroded. And there is no better example of that than the Salvo Deus area cemetery on Hatteras Island. I love that you brought up Rachel Carson. There's an excerpt that I want you to read later, and it includes a quote from her. I believe it's it's that precise quote about returning back to the sea. But to go back to your experience in the Outer Banks for one more question, you mentioned that some people had a, I don't know how you characterize it. I don't remember how you said it exactly, but that some people are more connected to climate within their lived experience than others, even though the climate crisis is playing out in everybody's life, everybody's lives in these communities where you were. Some people are thinking about climate change more than others. And it makes me wonder, like from your experience in this community and maybe others as well, like how much do we have to be talking about climate change when we're doing this climate storytelling? I just think it depends on like who you're reporting with and reporting on. So, you know, like on that or banks, like a lot of people talking about climate change felt like this taboo thing, you know, for folks there, they think of it more as like changes and it's being caused by like erosion or these natural forces. Mm. But I think at the end of the day, the stuff they're describing, like it is climate change. And to the, I think for me, it's like, it doesn't really matter what we call it. They recognize it's happening or they're talking about climate change, but they're not using this like sort of like, academic scientific like mainstream language that to me is almost like jargon so like they talk about it in their own way and i think that the the importance of meeting people where they're where they are that was sort of really instilled upon me in that work because if you can meet people where they are and their experiences like it's actually a lot easier to like get them to understand what's going on as opposed to just hitting them over the head with like the latest ipcc report that's like a telephone book. Like no one's got time for that. But the what I learned is like if you connect climate to stuff that people already care about, like that's how people sort of you can you can do some real storytelling. But also it's an opportunity for them to realize their own climate emotions and start talking about it more, and maybe even take action, even if it's like big or small. I wonder also, like in terms, I was telling you at the beginning of this interview that I am a little bit turned off of a lot of climate storytelling and I explained the reasons why that is. And I think another reason that many, especially in the United States, are turned off of climate storytelling is because climate change has become so politicized. And I think a place where it's quite politicized is in um, a lot of parts of the South where you do a lot of your reporting. And I wonder if like there's any kind of strategies that you deploy to decenter climate in your storytelling in order to help your stories reach broader audiences? Oh man, that's something I'm really struggling with right now, figuring out how to do better at. I'm glad you asked. I mean, I think that, you know, like in the the work I did in Princeville, North Carolina, which is the oldest town in America founded by formerly enslaved Black people, during reconstruction it's at the edge of the tar river and you know it constantly floods when there's these major hurricanes that come through you know marquetta and kendrick to the main people that like i just really became close friends with in this reporting process and reported on like you know initially they don't really they were initially thinking about climate change or talking about climate change in that language but 
again, you know, I connected with them through an, an assignment for NC State Magazine and photographed them. And that story ran and I kept in touch. And I was like, you know, there's so much more going on here. And I would come, I would come and hang out with them during their cemetery cleanups at the old historic cemetery. And we talk about climate change and it's, it's not that they're not thinking about it. It's just that in that area, there's other priorities. There's other like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that people are paying attention to, like jobs and housing and like stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like they were doing climate work, the type of work they're doing, they may, it may not be centered on climate. They may not be a climate organization, but like their ideas and their plans to like build black self-sufficiency and resiliency and, you know, flood resistance and stuff like that. These are climate actions. These are the things we have to do to survive. So like connecting that, these dots with them made them like at the end of the reporting process, Marquetta came to me and she's like, Hey, I'm, we're hiring a consultant so that we can like change the model of our organization and like talk about climate more. And I'm like, that's, that's better than any like prize or like, you know, like Pulitzer. It's like that you have a, you're able to connect, like I'm able to connect with someone on such a personal level and like we're able to like change each other and how we work and how we think. So that's kind of my strategy. It's sort of like in process trying to figure out how to do it wherever I am. But I think at the end of the day, it's just connecting climate to what people already care about. And I love that you brought up, I'm grateful that you brought up the Princeville work that you have been doing and I was wondering if you could share more about Marquetta Dickens and Kendrick Ransom and how you came connected to these two individuals in Princeville and in how the story that you shared about them developed. Yeah. So, I mean, like I met, I met Marquetta and Kendrick. Um, I was assigned by an editor at NC State Magazine to do some photography for a story that they were doing about how NC State was collaborating with the town of Princeville to build its flood resiliency and, you know, Marquetta Dickens and Kendrick Ransom, they are co-founders of an organization called Freedom Org. And essentially their mission is to, like, preserve Princeville, to work alongside the town's efforts. You know, they're a community nonprofit corporation. And, you know, Kendrick also runs Organic Farm. And he uses methods that actually sequester carbon in the soil. So he's, like, working on solving food desert issues, but also using a climate solution to do that. And I feel like everywhere I go, I just kind of fall for the place and I kind of fall for the people. And like, we just really hit it off. And the first time I met, I met them, you know, I had some phone calls about making a portrait of them in the Tar River at Shiler Landing, which is where the first enslaved people were brought ashore to be sold into plantations in Tarboro and Edgecombe County. And um, so like, you know, my editor, Lisa Sorg, we went there one time and she was like, Justin, the veil is thin here. I'm like, it really is. It's kind of like, it's very kind of enchanted, almost haunted place. And so I, me and a friend of mine, Alex Berner, he was assisting me that day. So we photographed them in the river, kind of like waist deep in the water because we felt like that was a sort of iconic portrait that we can make. And that portrait kind of got legs and people around the county saw it and kind of knew of, knew of them and knew of my work. And then I just stayed in touch with them. And I was like, there's just way more here. There's way, there's way more of a story here than just, this this magazine story for NC State, which was a great story, but there was there's something deeper. So I just kept hanging out, kept hanging out with them, and then you know doing interviews and realized that like really what they were doing were these were like climate solutions essentially. And this one thing led to another, and 
you know, ended up with this chaptered, this chaptered uh, project is series called Origins. And the first two chapters are called Homecoming Part One and Two. And it's about Marquetta and Mayor Jones, you know, the mayor of the town and the ways they're working to like rebuild the town and preserve the town and increase its like self-sufficiency and flood resistance. And then there's another chapter about Kendrick and his farm. It's called the Soil Farmers and what he's doing to feed his community in Pine Tops, which is just south of Princeville. But also like recognizing that like the way he works, these like low-till, no-till processes of like, you know, growing the soil is actually a a climate solution because it sequesters carbon. And then the last story is about prehistoric whales that once swam over Princeville three million years ago and how they evolved to become these massive carbon sequestering animals that we know today and how they are a natural climate solution. So that's kind of that project in a nutshell. It's a lot. (laughs) We'll talk about the prehistoric whales shortly. I wonder if we could stay with Kendrick for a second and you've brought up solutions a couple of times now. And, and what I really like about your work around climate solutions is that what you're exploring in these communities are solutions that are very much getting at systems of oppression, dismantling existing systems of power, systems of ecological exploitation. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about the types of solutions that you've witnessed and that you've written about, because I think this is a really important piece here, is very often climate solutions like dwell in this realm of like technocratic solutions that are very much like working within systems that have created the climate crisis to begin with. And I I think this is a really important distinction to make, but also maybe it would be helpful to, to have you paint a picture of what this, this other type of solution space can look like. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Kendrick and his farm is a really good example of how colonialism and violence to the land and slavery and all these things are kind of bound up in the climate crisis and are causal to the climate crisis. So if you know about Edgecombe County, it was a cotton county, you know, before the Civil War. And the process of growing cotton, clearing land, was in, in, you know, draining these Pocosins, these swamps and these wetlands was incredibly destructive to the area. And it's one of the reasons why there is flooding there at the scale that we have. You know, like cotton really depleted the soil. As you know, these co- white colonists pushed westward, they would deforest the land and displace indigenous people to plant more cotton, which would destroy the soil even more. But you know, Kendrick, you know, his family, like they farmed that area for a couple of generations, and you know, they kind of skipped a generation. He's like, I'm a skipped generation, fourth generation farmer. But Kendrick is just sort of like he just kind of said the hell with like the way people had been doing things out there and he wanted to get more in touch with the land and grow his own food in a way that his ancestors did sort of in the spirit of like George Washington Carver, where he used organic means, you know, compost and things like that. He wasn't using these massive machines, you know, these like large agricultural, large scale agricultural, big ag, like, you know, huge farms. So he's farming his family land as a way to, one, know where his food is coming from because he's tired of like not being able, like going to the grocery store and buying food that's grown, you know, half a world away. Two, he wants to provide healthy food in this 
Pine Tops, which is the town he lives in, which is a food desert. Nescom County has like, there's like a food deficit, essentially. Like there's a lot of like hunger and stuff there. But it turns out the methods he's using, you know, by not tilling the soil and not destroying these microbial networks and not destroying the roots and the fungal networks that essentially hold carbon in the ground, he's actually like increasing the land's ability to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through via photosynthesis. And then it actually like stores that in the ground. Um, so this, so he's literally rebuilding the soil that was destroyed by cotton farming, this monocrop cotton farming. And he's, he's like basically sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And that's just like, like this is an example of like how a, an ordinary person where they are can like, be a part of the climate solution and the stuff he's doing. Like, I mean, you can do it in your front yard. Like, like we tore up our grass in our front yard and pl- planted raised beds. And like, I don't, I don't till them. I mix, mix them with compost and like healthy soil. And like, th- we have like results from that. You can basically like whatever, what he's doing as County, like you can turn your front yard into like a carbon sink just by doing what he's doing. It's not incredibly difficult. In this piece, I believe it's this piece you talk about how within some Black communities in the South, the USDA has been characterized as the last plantation. And I wonder if you can speak about that because I think that connects to like how the work that Kendrick is doing can be seen as so revolutionary in terms of, of changing some of these systems of oppression that have that continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, essentially the USDA, you know, this national, um, they're like a national like program, but they're administrated locally. And basically for decades, they systematically dispossessed black black farmers from their land, denied them loans, denied them funding that they needed to like be like self-sufficient. And that sort of process essentially mirrored the plantation economy where black people they weren't able they weren't able to like have their farms and they say like to this day like there's very few black farmers in eastern north carolina but kendrick has sort of he's just sort of like bucked that whole system and just kind of like does his own thing and sort of he's gotten some like private investors so he doesn't have to like go through that pathway with the usda because there's like there's like a big lawsuit still pending with the usda where Essentially, like the a bunch of black farmers, including one in East North Carolina, has sued for essentially for reparations for all the money that they were denied and like land that was stolen and stuff like that. And Kendrick's a big advocate for that. But I think essentially he's trying to find his own way outside of that system. And to me, that's why it's so revolutionary because it's also like he's like literally going back to his ancestors' roots. He's refusing to do these big monocrop farms. He's like diversifying what he's growing there. And it's he's all about like local. Everything should be like local. And I think that like as we people talk about degrowth as a climate solution, like that's I think that's where things are headed. Like stuff is more local. And I think like we have more, we're more connected to the land the way he is. That makes any sense. It makes such sense. And just to step back for a second and look at this um, or to talk more about this origins uh, four-part series you have, it's so beautiful. And as I was reading it, I felt like I was meeting these characters, Marquetta and Kendrick, others you have mentioned in there, the way you fractal out their stories, what you do, like what I, what I see you doing is creating this incredibly beautiful tapestry of 
these people's lives, what these communities, this particular community looks like, what the farm looks like, what the soil looks like, who the children are who are running around this place, how they spend their time, like what they're learning. And it's just such a, I mean, maybe it's not completely comprehensive. You're still, you know, you're still creating your story here, but it really does transport me to this place. And I know you've also commented um, in some places about how journalism so often today is structured to be like very quick. You need the story today. You need the story last week. You got to get in, get the story, get out, next story. And what you're doing is something so different. I wonder if you could speak more about how you're, how you're countering the sort of like journalistic norm and also about like the art of the kind of journalism that you're doing, because it seems like it's so much more than just journalism. Yeah. I mean, I think that the same mentality that has created the climate crisis has also created a crisis in journalism. It's this like culture of urgency. Like we need everything now. We needed it yesterday. It's this, I think, historical legacy in journalism of working extractively, flying into community, getting the story and flying out, but not really thinking about like impact beyond the journalism. And, you know, a lot of that is a function of this industry being shaped by white men for so long who look like me. It's also a function of the gutting of our industry and local newspapers and local journalism disappearing of budget cuts and staff cuts. I mean, that mindset to me is like the same of what's created this climate crisis. It's just this absolute disconnection from like what's actually important. But I think like, you know, I'm incredibly privileged because, you know, I have a background working in newspapers and I went freelance and I've built with a lot of help a successful like commercial photography business that really helps pay my bills and gives me the time and space to really slow down and report more slowly and more intentionally. And, uh, you know, an outlet with a reporter based in Brooklyn doesn't necessarily have that luxury because they're balancing four stories that are all due in a month or a couple of weeks or whatever. But I think that like the climate crisis is telling us that we are out of relationship with each other and with the natural world and that we need to have more reciprocal relationships. So to me, the only way to do that, if I'm going to have like more reciprocal intimate relationships with the people and places I'm reporting on, I have to slow down. I remember I was at the Society of Environmental Journalists conference back in April, and there was this indigenous author and activist there. I can't remember his last name, but his first name was Dallas. He was incredible. But he was like telling us that like the, the journalists need to think more indigenously and become more indigenous to place. And to report indigenously means to tell long stories because that's how indigenous people communicate their history. And I was just like really struck by that. And it felt like kind of like permission to slow down (laughs) and like go at my own pace, but also to go at the pace of like my brain and my ADHD and like my own neurodivergence. I couldn't be more excited about this idea that slower storytelling is 
on the rise. I mean, it's wonderful that you're making it available, that you're devoting yourself to it. I wonder though, is there an audience for slower storytelling? I imagine yes. I mean, I'll be your audience. I'm sure many others will be. I think people who listen to this podcast, which like tends to meander and get lost in the abstraction, like I was telling <laughs> you before, you know, they might be, and I, I'm sure some people will be, but there's so many strong forces at play within the media landscape. And people like very often get pulled into this. I mean, like I'm, I should speak for myself, right? Like I feel the I feel the pull to get pulled into the rapid, rapid river of just headlines and social media and messaging all over the place. And just there's so many forces at play telling us that we should not slow down. And even if we know we should slow down, that it's good for our health, that these forces are strong, right? Like these these entities that are telling us to not slow down, they're very powerful. They spend a lot of money figuring out how to convince us to go faster and faster and faster. So where are we heading with this kind of storytelling? I don't know where we're headed, honestly. I just know, I know that there is a craving for in-depth storytelling. Not that it's just in-depth, but it's complex. I think that people are tired of like simplistic binary narratives. I think that we sort of underestimate people's ability to like process and appreciate complex information. We were talking about this uh, the other week um, at the Covering Climate Now, Climate Like Changes Everything conference in New York that was at, like Solutions Journals and Network was there. And they were talking about how like there's like data that shows that readers want complexity. And I think that good journalism doesn't spin a simple narrative. Things become gray and more complicated. But to get there, you have to invest time. You have to create experience for readers to make them stay invested in the story you're telling. It can't be the only way we tell stories because, you know, if you're in Edgecombe County, like a rural community, and you're getting most of your information and your news from your cell phone, it's going to be hard for you to read a 6,000 word story with huge pictures on your phone. So like there has to be this kind of sweet spot between the story, these long form stories that we do, but also like creating news packages and stories that also meet communities where they are with the resources they have so they can get the information they need and better serves them. I think the Solutions Journals Network is like really trying to do that with some other models. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a both and type of situation. Like you, the, the work that I did um, was very long form and I think it resonated with a lot of people. (laughs) One of the, one of the, one of the gentlemen that I worked with in the homecoming story, Robert Andrew, I called him and I was like, hey, what'd you think of the story? He was like, oh man, it was good, but God, it was so long. <laughs> I was just like, I just laughed. I was like, thanks, Robert. That's really good feedback. I'll remember that. But he's right. I mean, he's like a busy guy. He's like running his own business in Princeville. He doesn't have time to read 6,000 words. So we need to do both. We just need to figure out better ways to do it. In addition to being, I mean, you would be characterized as a journalist and you you do a lot of journalistic work, but you're also very clearly an artist, a photographer, but also just the way that you weave together these these stories um, shows artistic inclination. And I'm wondering how artistic sensibilities might be influencing your broader journalistic work. I mean, like I, you know, I wasn't always a photographer and a writer. Like I started very young, five years old 
drawing and pencil pictures of great white sharks from the shark documentaries that my mom would record for me. And we would watch, me and my twin brother would watch on VHS. So like the way I, I think about photography as an art, to me, it is art, like artful compositions and use of light and moments are what make a strong photograph that resonates with people. So, I mean, that art informs how I write like down to the sentence structure from like, you know, zooming in and out with my words, like writing cinematically, like it's really the same as making a photograph, like the sort of granular tight shot with the camera, you can do that with words. And to me, that's art. And I think that like art, like that mindset draws from like a deeper well of possibility and imagination and that sort of art and creativity is like how we make meaning out of things. So, you know, like when I make photographs, I'm not necessarily like looking to make like, this process photo that shows like, here is the solution or like, here is this place. But I'm thinking about like themes and like, photo- I want to photograph adjectives instead of nouns. And I want to photograph like feelings. And I think about color a lot. And, like I think in colors, you know, like the, the story about the whales, I was drawing from like music and poetry and humanities and how other people think about climate, which is, way beyond journalism it's more it's more in this sort of art realm that we're talking about and i think that like creates a richer experience for the audience and i think i thought about the, actually the structure of that series origins i thought of it more like an album where you know the the stories flow together and they're interconnected but each story hits a different note that's beautiful and i do think that comes across i definitely think like this multidisciplinary multimedia multicolor Thing that you have going on definitely is is a part of why it is possible for someone like me who often gets distracted, maybe like many people listening, to read a 6,000 word piece um, because there's so much poetry um, and there's so much variation in your communication. So I can I can see how what you're talking about translates to the experience of the viewer and the reader as well. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. You also weave a lot of photography. You mentioned the the big photos for the phones. There's some incredible portraiture work in these pieces that you're talking about. And on top of that, you're also like into this beautiful tapestry of work. You're bringing in historical artifacts as well, things that you're digging out of archives, I believe, and libraries. How do you balance the the different types of mediums that you use when you're putting together a story and you're figuring out like how best to share this individual's life and this community's life with the outside world? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a good question. I mean, I think that for me, photography doesn't necessarily just illustrate the solutions, but it, it creates an experience for people. It helps people to like get to know and understand the land, the place. So many of my stories like are very like focused on like place. Like the portraits that I make, I used to do like these fly on the wall sort of documentary type moment driven photography, which I still really love. And I, I still do that, but it's very time consuming because you're basically like composing and waiting and anticipating for a moment to happen. But the, the more I do this work, I also want to do make these like iconic portraits of people that like that are environmental so that like you can see how they are like rooted to their place. So an example is like the picture of Gene Hooper in the Pamco sound in Tide and Time. I echoed that with the picture of like Kendrick and Marquetta in the Tar River. 
to kind of build some commonality between these different communities. But, you know, I think that that process too is also like these portraits, they're collaborative. So like, as opposed to just like hanging out, waiting for a moment to happen, like you're building something with the person, like very intentionally and like getting feedback and like kind of creating something that like they also like really appreciate and feels like it represents them well and they're happy with. And to me, that builds rapport. It's like the portrait stuff is like really important to the process. Yeah. I wonder, um, you mentioned that the journalistic space has been created by this like long lineage of white men. And I wonder, um, since the type of storytelling you're doing is quite different from, from what we've come to expect in the mainstream, how are you making sure that the individuals that you feature and the communities that you feature are comfortable with how they're being represented in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something, that, that's just this active practice and process that I'm always thinking about, you know, as a, as a white man coming into a Black community, historically Black community that's been essentially like harmed by people like me repeatedly through history. You know, the approach in Princeville I tried to take was like to be very open and be very reciprocal and understanding like if folks are really sharing such intimate parts of their lives with me, like I should share mine with them as well. And I think that sort of that reciprocal relationship is what makes the process work. So like throughout the whole process, like, you know, I was sending Kendrick Marquetta photos and they were seeing what I was doing and they were like, they were like jazzed about it. Like they were excited. And, you know, we tried to collaborate like on multiple portraits and, you know, I was try- I tried to be very transparent about like what I was doing and how I was reporting. And you can't honor every everything that everybody wants all the time because you ultimately have to like, maintain like some editorial control over the work but you can be like a lot more thoughtful and a lot more open you know like mayor jones like we spent a bunch of time making his portrait um and i I made him some prints that he could have like just enjoy and like let him pick you know which ones he wanted um i think it's stuff like that that makes a difference because you're signaling to people that like you're invested in more than just like flying and flying out I know Marquetta, Marquetta and I even went fossil hunting one time because I was in town and she was like, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm heading to the creek. She's like, I want to come. I'm like, let's go. So we had that experience together and I felt like it was like the least I could do. Did you yeah. find anything? Oh my gosh. She found a whale vertebrae on her first fossil hunt. Is that it a big like, deal? It's a big deal. Yeah. What happens to, um, I mean, for the audience, like Justin is a fossil hunter. And actually, this is a good segue to an excerpt that he's going to read to us about prehistoric whales. But what like, what do you do with these whale pieces that you dig out of the riverbed? So a lot of time, a lot of, most of the time when it's like late at night and it's really quiet and the house is really still, I'll sit there and look at it in the corner and just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> how is this possible? <laughs> like, how can I possibly like, like it's just the whole immensity of like the fact that you can like dig a 3 million year old whale vertebrae out of a muddy Creek bottom, a hundred miles from the ocean. Like that is just like sort of mind bending for me. So much. Um, yeah. And I think it just sort of, um, it's a reminder that like, you know, humans, wealthy Western, you know, uh, the global North humans have done so much to destroy the atmosphere and, you know, drive so many creatures to extinction. 
we haven't been here very long. We're kind of a blip in Earth in Earth's history. Like at the end of the day, like we don't really matter in this sort of long expanse of cosmic, you know, geologic time. It's 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 just humbling. It kind of reminds me of that perspective. Yeah, I can I can see that. I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading an excerpt from Whales of Fishing Creek. Sure. Okay, so this is The Whales of Fishing Creek, Climate Lessons from the Pliocene. In the dim, vast expanse of geologic time stretching back billions of years to the origins of all Earth life, human history in Edgecombe County, North Carolina is a blip. Its first indigenous inhabitants, the Tuscarora, Lumbee, and Moratok people, only arrived here 10,000 years ago. They lived in harmony with the rivers and creeks until white colonists vanquished them in wars and stole their land. But the sea was here for longer, long before modern humans evolved, before we could conceive of war or God, empires or racial caste systems, before we realized that we could burn the remains of extinct creatures to power our economies. Deep beneath North Carolina's coastal plain, 100 miles from the Atlantic Ocean are marine sediment layers teeming with fossils that date back 66 million years to the Cretaceous period, the age of giant aquatic reptiles and even the land-roaming Tyrannosaurus rex. The sediments are a sort of epic poem of the earth, wrote Rachel Carson in her book, The Sea Around Us. When we are wise enough, perhaps we can read in them all of past history, for all of us written here. In the nature of the materials that compose them and in the arrangement of their successive layers, the sediments reflect all that has happened in the waters above them and on their surrounding lands. Here, the water remembers. These prehistoric ocean deposits cut through by rivers like the Tar and its tributaries hold an archive of evolution. The fossils tell a story of resilience and reciprocity and offer lessons for thriving in a climate-changed world. They reveal how climate change in the past 4.5 million years caused whales to evolve into enormous ecosystem engineers essential to the Earth's carbon cycle, which forms and fuels all life on Earth and stores carbon in the rocks, in the soil, the sky, and the sea. They also foretell potential climate prophecies for our planet. Whales are entangled in the climate emergency story. Their fate dovetailed with chattel slavery, with sugar, cotton, and coal, key industries that drove colonialism since the 16th century, and made possible the modern extractive capitalism that birthed our climate crisis. For centuries, whales were hunted for the oil in their blubber, which was burned in street lamps in big cities that pumped carbon back into the atmosphere. Industrial whaling decimated global whale populations to less than a quarter of their pre-industrial numbers, nearly driving them extinct. Whales are social animals. They work in teams and befriend other whale species. They mourn the death of their calves, and they defend other marine mammals from predators. They have their own cetacean cultures. In the case of humpbacks, they gather where they were born in the tropics to make and remix songs that spread to other groups across oceans. Edgecombe County is the grave of ancient whales. Their bones litter the Yorktown Formation, a layer of ancient seafloor deposited 5.3 million to 2.5 million years ago as the sea rose and fell during the early to middle Pliocene epoch when global temperatures were three to four degrees Celsius warmer than today. The Yorktown tracks closely with the Atlantic seaboard fall line in nearby Nash County, which separates the rocky Piedmont from the sandy coastal plain sediment that was deposited by ancient seas. These Pliocene whale fossils are mixed up in layers of prehistoric ocean sediment, a sticky, sandy clay 
rich in calcium carbonate and phosphates from the pulverized compacted shells and the remains of plankton and other tiny sea creatures. This olive green and bluish gray time capsule clay is often called marl. Farmers once used this natural marine carbon as fertilizer across the farmlands of eastern North Carolina, including Edgecombe, where it was essential to growing cotton and other plantation crops planted and picked by enslaved Black people. This mysterious sea life that died millions of years ago nourished the soil, the fibers we wore, and the food that we ate. The dust of the Pliocene lives on in us. It's beautiful, Justin. Just as a last excerpt from this piece, I wonder, since you spoke about fossil hunting with Marquetta, I wonder if you could read this piece about fossil hunting helping you cope with your climate emotions. Yeah, I'll read that last section. Fossil hunting helps me cope with my climate emotions and transform them into action. It's a form of meditation and deep listening, a way to intimately know your bioregion, a region defined not by human place names and boundaries, but by characteristics of the natural environment. My bioregion also includes past iterations of the land and its extinct inhabitants. Time is not a river running inexorably to the sea, but the sea itself. It's tides that appear and disappear, the fog that rises to become rain in a different river, All things that were will come again, writes indigenous author and botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book Braiding Sweetgrass, recounting an indigenous creation story where the past, the present, and the future exist at once. Creation then is an ongoing process, she concludes, and the story is not history alone. It is also a prophecy. Thank you so much for sharing that. And part of the reason I wanted to share your work here, to have you read out word for word from one of your pieces, is because One of the things that your work does so beautifully is that it invites a deep kind of attention. And I think that is an incredible thing. You get at it here in this piece where you're showing all of these layers of time and history and you're going down literally layers into the ground to unpack like all of the richness that is in one place. And that to me, it's it's like your work is so much more gentle than so much of what is out there. It's this sort of, instead of like grabbing attention, you are inviting this it's sort of like opening a door and being like, you can come in if you want. And you can tell from standing on the threshold that there is just like a whole world of wonder there. And it's almost like you're inviting people to come pay attention to these stories that you're sharing but also to maybe find like a deeper culture of care and attention in their daily lives, right? Like I imagine that if you come out of this 6,000 word piece here, then maybe just maybe you might have a little bit more patience for complexity in your own context, wherever that may be. And I'm just so grateful that you, you share those pieces. I hope that people will go on to read more about them and Mary Oliver said that attention is the beginning of devotion. She shared that in her book of essays called Upstream. And I think about that so much. And I really think that that inviting people just to pay attention can really incite a, a culture of care that can so meaningfully transform our societies. Do you think about that when you're creating your work or is that just a way that you you are in the world quite naturally? I think it's how I am. And I think a lot about it a lot in the work that I do. I just, I really like to do stories that are rooted in place. You know, I love the way Rachel Carson thinks about 
the natural world. I love the way Robin Wall Kimmerer thinks about the natural world. Robin, she has this like beautiful quote. Science can give us knowing, but caring comes from someplace else. So I think the what I hear from her is that like we have this duty to translate the science into poetry and that requires art. What a nice note to end on. Justin, just to wrap up, I wonder if you could share with us like five artists or artistic creations that are meaningful, special to you. One of my favorite creative people right now um, is Alexis Pauline Gums. She's a poet and just thinker here in Durham. And I quoted her book, Undrowned. It's Black Feminist Lessons for Marine Mammals in this book, in this story about whales. And her work is just incredible. The way she thinks and connects ideas and just sort of subverts the scientific gaze is just really beautiful. And that book kind of turned my brain inside out. Another photographer who I really love is this friend of mine in Durham, Cornell Watson. He just does incredible sort of conceptual work about the Black experience. Um, he's from Eastern North Carolina, like one county over from Edgecombe. I just I love his work. I've always loved uh, my friend Natalie Kizar's work. She's based in Brooklyn. She's like the most tender, like thoughtful photographer I've ever met in my entire life. And I would definitely check out her work. Thank you so much for those. Share them. And finally, do you have a piece of homework for the audience? Something to do or think about, to look for, to make? My piece of homework would be for folks to just go outside today and enjoy like where they are and just slow down a little bit. How, how can we slow down? Just in case that's a very challenging thing for someone. What is a way, what is a prompt for slowing down? go play in a creek somewhere you might find a fossil oh cool how, by the way not to digress here to completely but how do you look for a fossil so you're i've seen photos of you doing it um you're just like reaching down into the ground feeling around it's so much fun um fossil hunting sort of like lights up every sort of like adhd like thing in your body because it's very tactile but basically like Long story short, you have a shovel, you have a homemade fossil hunting screen, and you have a metal rod that uses as a probe. And the way I hunt is I go to creeks and rivers where I know there's exposures of the Yorktown formation somewhere under the creek bed. And I hunt for gravel because the way the water sort of cuts through these exposures, like bone and rock are basically the same thing. So if you find areas where there's like lots of gravel like in the Yorktown formation, there's going to be lots of bones as well because they all kind of collect there. And then you dig and you sift. And sometimes there's something in the screen and sometimes there isn't. And you just have to do it by feel. You can't really see what you're doing, um, but it kind of engages all the senses. Now I so. want to drive down to North Carolina and come fossil hunting with you. So watch out. <laughs> it might be coming uh, down. <laughs> and <all> also, <laughs> if anyone does go out and um, look for fossils. Do let Justin know. I'll share all his information um, down below in addition to links to his work. And um, Justin, thank you so much. This is a wonderful conversation. Thanks for your you're time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And if you're in North Carolina, let me know. I have some waiters that will fit you. Oh, woohoo. See you soon. Okay. Bye, Justin. Bye. <laughs>
And that's it for the episode. I hope you enjoyed meeting Justin and spending time with us. Thank you to Samuel Cunningham for the podcast editing, to Cosmo Sheldrake for the music, which comes from his song Pelican's We. The podcast art is created by me, Rebecca Rivola the Kremer. You can find links for connecting with both myself and Justin in the show description, along with ways to find Justin's writing and photography, and also to see the accompanying blog post. Until next time, take care. <laughs>